Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Some say cryptocurrency is the future of money. Others think it's a house of cards that could come crashing down at any minute. Today, we're listening back to our latest RBC Disruptors event, a lively discussion about the future of cryptocurrency. We heard from an entrepreneur who's bullish, a venture capitalist who's more skeptical, and a blockchain researcher who says we all need to understand crypto's disruptive potential. Here's our conversation. Today, we're talking about cryptocurrency. And before I introduce our guests, I want to kick off with an excerpt from a letter, which probably many of you read. Uh, This was a letter to Jamie Dimon from Adam Lutwin, who's the CEO of a company called Chain. And he was responding to Jamie Dimon's skepticism, (laughs) to put it politely, about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And I thought this might help set the stage and the tone for the conversation. So Adam wrote, let me start by stating that I believe the market for cryptocurrencies is overheated and irrationally exuberant. There are a lot of posers creating them and some scammers too. There's a lot of conflicts of interest, self-serving hype and obfuscation. Very few people in the media understand what's going on. Very few people in finance understand what's going on. Very few people in technology understand what's going on. Very few people in academia or government understand what's going on. Very few people buying cryptocurrencies understand what's going on. And it's very possible I don't understand what's going on. So I think on that last point, he's entirely right. I can speak for myself and maybe for some people in the audience. We've got three terrific people here to help us understand a bit of what's going on. Uh, I'll introduce you and ask you each to just share a bit uh, about what, uh, what you're up to today, starting with uh, Matthew Spoke, who's the CEO of Nuco, although you've uh, changed your name and a bit of your, your, your mission. Uh, let you, Matthew, explain, uh, explain to us in 30 seconds Great. what you're up to. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Matthew Spoke. I'm the founder of a project where we've been developing for the last few years called Aeon. Uh, we're, a, we're developing a nonprofit, um, essentially software foundation focused on uh, scaling infrastructure in the public and private blockchain uh, space. So we'll talk more Great. about Great. We'll get, we'll get into yeah. that. Hillary, welcome. Hillary Carter, Director of Research at the Blockchain Research Institute here in Toronto. Tell us Thanks. a bit about BRI. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Uh, at Blockchain Research Institute, we're a multi-million dollar think tank. And uh, we are conducting the definitive investigation into blockchain applications, strategies, and use cases across a dozen different industries, exploring how this technology will transform organizations and change um, old business models. Great. Christian. Christian Lassonde, you probably recognize him from a a whole range of forums, including uh, BNN appearances. Christian runs something called uh, Innovation, uh, Impression Ventures, I'm sorry. Impression Ventures, he's the uh, founder and managing partner. Thanks. Yeah, so Impression Ventures is a venture capital firm, uh, and our focus is exclusively on companies disrupting financial services. Uh, We've invested in in, uh, companies in the wealth tech space. Uh, We've invested in companies in insure tech. Uh, payments uh, all across sectors, and we've certainly spent a lot of time over the last couple of years investigating uh, the crypto space, uh, given its uh, its potential impact on financial services. Great. And I'll just say one last thing, which is uh, I'm definitely a cynical optimist, uh, <laughs> so uh, as most VCs probably are. We've got a good range of opinions on, on stage, so we'll, we'll have some uh, pretty heated uh, discussion and debate. Let's start with uh, some snappers, just to get to know you a bit. I'm uh, le- uh, going to kick off with uh, a question about your worst investment or online purchase uh, to date? Uh, <laughs> worst investment or online purchase? Um, there are definitely a few cryptocurrencies that I should have stayed away from over the course of the last few years. Um, this, this market has proven that not everything goes up, <laughs> uh, if I can say that. But uh, yeah, definitely, I'd say worst investments made in the cryptocurrency space. A lesson in gravity. <laughs> Hillary. I made a, a penny stock purchase of a tech company in the late 90s, and my folly was not to sell it when it went up on absolutely no grounds. and didn't even get my cost out. So the, the company itself grew. I didn't sell, and then it went back to basically nothing. So it was a lesson learned. Christian. Uh, I've got a great one. Uh, one very early investment of mine uh, in Novell in 1992. Uh, so great, uh, great point. This is right before the you know, internet really took off, and uh, they were big believers in the IPX network, uh, which, of course, is, uh, was a competitor to the IP network, and that didn't work out so well for me. <laughs> but I learned a lot from it. What did you learn? 
Uh, you know what? That, uh, that disruption comes in all shapes and sh sizes and really to be looking out into the future as to what other potential uh, competitors are doing. Great. Well, let's get into cryptocurrency. And Matt, maybe you can help uh, set the table here with a bit of definition. A lot of hype we saw in the, in the video. Lots of hype, different differences of, 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 of opinion, and a lot of differences of definition. So help the audience understand what is cryptocurrency in your mind. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges is that it's very difficult to define it as a single thing. I think it's a, it's a new mechanism to, to create um, fungible value uh, that can be attached to any number of things. And um, so you look across the spectrum of cryptocurrencies. I mean, if you, if you focus on this market, you realize there are thousands of them out there, probably 99% of them being less than all that relevant. But there are definitely different mechanisms to now create value that can be traded, uh, and that value might be representative of, of some different underlying asset or no underlying asset. Uh, but it's the idea of frictionless movement of value. But Hillary, we were talking offstage about how her uh, mother has become a crypto grandma. Um, <laughs> how, how do you define cryptocurrency for her? Since you've I think got her invested in it. Yeah, it, uh, I would say investment is a, a, a generous uh, way to describe it. Really experimentation by holding a small amount, no more than $50, for example, simply for the purpose of having a hands-on learning experience to understand to understand this technology is to have a hands-on experience with it, to, to explore how the currency uh, changes hands, to, um, to take a look at the architecture of how Bitcoin operates, uh, to watch price fluctuations on your phone. I think that's a tremendous learning experience. And so I wanted both my mother to ex explore that as well as my children to understand a little bit about what I do. We can have some conversations in a meaningful way. And what problem are we trying to solve with this? The problem we're trying to solve is creating a mechanism for value transfer that does not require an intermediary. That is um, the, the, the purpose of cryptocurrencies. Truly decentralized money uh, enables individuals to, to transfer uh, value without uh, an established intermediary to um, uh, serve as a trusted party. And it, it's an incredibly uh, efficient mechanism, though it has a long way to go. But the current system is not terribly broken, probably in a lot of people's minds. So why try, to, uh, why try to fix it? It's not terribly broken, but it doesn't serve two and a half billion people who are not part of our global financial system. Um, our, our system, there, there is a lot of friction in financial services. We cannot pay our US dollar vendors with a check, a US dollar denominated check drawn on a Canadian bank. Email money transfers within Canada, that's great. But if we're trying to make international payments, that's really problematic. Creates a lot of friction in, in global supply chains, for example. Right, we'll come uh, back to that. Christian, you, you, you talked about hype cycles uh, a little bit before. wonder if you can share some insight on this hype cycle. What, what's fueling this? Even just in the last 12 months, this has uh, yeah, no, shown all the, the signs of cycles we've talked about for uh, decades past. You know, with the caveat that I may not know what I'm talking about. Uh, given so, okay, I think we've established no one does. <laughs> no one, so no you're, one does. You're, Look, I think, I think the number one uh, fuel, for, the rocket fuel for, the, for this is greed. Um, uh, you know, greed is the, is the, is the very typical uh, fuel for, for any bubble, and any asset bubble. Um, uh, but I think there's also, I think that's, that's one. I think the second level is, you know, there's a lot of jargon being thrown around. Uh, and I think a lot of people who think they understand what that jargon means. And I think, you know, the crypto space uh, has, done a, has done a really amazing job uh, for good or bad, to to, to you know, surround itself with you know all sorts of words like uh, distributed and federated and et cetera, et cetera. Like they they, they layer on these terms, and it gives a mysticism to the space uh, that uh, that is, is actually undeserved. Because really, when you boil down a lot of what was go what's going on, is you have you know the distributed ledger. Oh, well, that sounds really sexy. But if I explain it as a really really slow, really really expensive database, not so sexy. <laughs> um, and so I think a lot of that jargon is also fueling a lot of the speculative behavior we're seeing. It's important what you say about the slowness, and there's, there's, there's a lot of friction in blockchain, and I want to come back to Matthew and Hillary on this, because as people invest more in it, they're discovering this is not necessarily something that moves at the speed of light. Uh, so it's got its own frictions while it's trying to address the frictions in the incumbent system. How quickly is that going to go away, Hillary? I see the industry working diligently to try to solve the scalability of blockchain architecture. Um, and I think, to be fair, when the internet launched, um, Netflix would not have been able to run on the internet of, of the mid to early 90s, completely impossible. 
um, developments had to be made in order to, to service internet-based applications. And that's sort of where we are in terms of blockchain architecture. We are using beta-grade architecture right now, and everybody knows that we've got a lot of work to do before um, the technology can, can be scaled and, and solve problems. Can I counter that one? Yeah. Because <laughs> the, the underlying protocol for the internet, IP and UDP and TCP, have not changed. Like, these are literally protocols that were designed in the 70s, if not earlier, that Netflix runs on. So what changed between now and then is, is fiber optic cables, is, mm -hmm. the, is the hardware that the stuff runs on. Um, so to argue that the protocols to, of, of blockchain today are not where they need to be, um, or, or, or is that the knowledge to the IP? I, I, don't, I don't believe that for a second. IP actually has had its killer app within three years of its launch, which was email. Uh, we have, it's 10 years later from blockchain, we still haven't seen the killer app. Unless you believe that Bitcoin is the killer app. Yeah, and I think so, that's so what Matt, a lot defend, of people would just defend that, is it? I think, well, I mean, you know, to be fair, there's layers and layers of infrastructure that need to get built for any new system. Uh, that's the stage we're at. I think the hype is res results from the fact that people are over-promising on infrastructure that's not quite, you know, ready to meet those promises. Um, but underneath this hype trend, you know, if you lay two, two graphs, on one on top of the other, you'll probably see that there's fundamental innovation and fundamental development happening that's just buried underneath a mountain of speculation. And that doesn't mean that the fundamentals aren't growing in the right direction, it just means that we can't see it because we're all blinded by you know, the crazy volatile markets that sit on top of that, the, that fundamental innovation. Um, I think, you know, to your point, fiber optic cables is a great analogy for some infrastructure that has yet to be built in the, in the crypto space. There are people working on you know, better hardware and better virtual machine designs and you know, faster processing of transactions. You know, these are layers of infrastructure that have to be built to make this more feasible. So I don't doubt that there's a lot of innovation going on, a lot of important innovation going on. How, how is Bitcoin the killer app? Well, I'd say, you know, scrape everything away. Right now, you try to use Bitcoin as, a, you know, as an alternative to any payment system. I'd say in most countries around the world, it's a, it's a least, less efficient way to do it. Uh, and that might be true for the next 10 years. Uh, it might be true for the It might be always true. You know, Bitcoin may always be less efficient. Uh, the problem we're fundamentally trying to address as an industry is the problem of trust, is the problem of uh, why should we place all of this centralized trust into the hands of a very small number of companies around the world? Uh, not just in financial services, but you know, in internet infrastructure in general. With the, you know, the promises of the early internet was to create, you know, a decentralized communication protocol that very quickly became a very centralized communication protocol that, that leads to the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandals that we're dealing with today in, in the media, right? So, and we see this as significantly more fundamental than just a new mechanism for payment. We see this as re-architecting how do we build accessible and fair and open systems that don't end up being controlled by a very, very small number of companies around the world. So what's, what's wrong with centralization? Because it seems that the general population is pretty comfortable with that. We've, yeah, we've accepted I, I, Facebook, for example, as a centralizing speaking, force. We're okay with that. Yeah, and I think, you know, Christian, Christian, I think we were arguing about this on the phone last week when we were talking about this, is centralization has led to efficiency. And I think in most people's lives, they're willing to make that trade-off. They're willing to say, I'll give you my data because I, you, you provide me a service that's extremely efficient. And unless there's a equivalently efficient service that's Same with money. Same with money. And um, I, I, can I just interject? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I thought, I thought a little bit more about it since our conversation on Friday. <laughs> and I think we're also discounting the, the, the cost of behavior change, right? In other words, we, you know, I think something as a VC that we think a lot about whenever we're investing in a company is, you know, will the company, the product service the company's bringing, does it require behavioral change within the, the audience that they're serving? And if it does, the hurdle becomes much higher for investment. Why? Because people don't change. Um, uh, and when they do change, it requires a massive amount of effort. So we do like so. A great example of change that we have seen is the introduction of the iPhone and the use of smartphones. Before that, people you know didn't do anywhere near stuff as much stuff uh, as, as they did on the smartphone or the smartphones that exist. But that change required a massive amount of effort by a single actor working in a very uh, coordinated and concentrated effort, spending billions. That was Apple. Um, so, in my view, that the, one of the biggest challenges of the distributed space is can you have that sustained, concentrated, and, and coordinated effort in a system that actually is very much designed against that? And I think that's a, that, to me, is a, a big uh, doubt that I have about the long-term viability of the space. Although the, the smartphone benefited extremely, uh, significantly from compression technology and cloud computing. That allowed us to share photos and video, yeah. which changed ev everything. That's, and that was part of the coordinated, concentrated effort by a single actor working in unison to make a behavioral change. So isn't that going to happen in blockchain? If I, if I was a betting man, and I guess, guess I am, I would bet no. Right. 
Let's get back to the, uh, to, to the centralization debate and what the benefit is to the consumer. Because I'm hearing from, from, from Matt and Hillary that this is an interesting but kind of fringe experiment. Uh, and this, I'm wondering when it's going to go mainstream in finance. Hillary. Mainstream in finance. Um, it, that's a, a, an excellent question, John, and I, I don't have uh, a perfect answer for that. Uh, it, it may go mainstream in underserved uh, regions where they simply don't have access to financial services or where centralized money has uh, become so devalued that ordinary people have lost faith in, in their governments to provide economic stability. Um, if the technology creates platforms and services and protocols that add value and incentivize behavior, then we will see behavior change and migration. Ultimately, human behavior is motivated by, um, is incentive driven. And so much of blockchain architecture is um, based on incentive mechanisms. That's embedded. And if we witness a migration from centralized uh, social media applications like Facebook to a decentralized social media application whereby individuals have a brand new incentive that never existed before where they can monetize the data that they generate, where they can enjoy new levels of privacy that have previously been unattainable in the digital economy, that's a paradigm shift. And I think if Facebook and other centralized tools are giving us a disincentive by way of excessive surveillance, and data breaches. And new technology and new applications are providing us with brand new incentives, including the opportunities to monetize our own data. I think that we will see a transition of human behavior. Where there is value, we'll see migration. So much of this comes back to, you mentioned this earlier, to, to, to trust. And I, I sense that a lot of what you're talking about is, is in reference to low trust societies or segments of society. And that's, that's fine. But in the main, in the, certainly in the mainstream of the world, everything is built on high trust. So our democracy, our financial system are all built on trust. And it's kind of working with some, some problems as you've identified. Matthew, I'm, I'm wondering if fundamentally that is the, the epic challenge for you, that you're essentially trying to encourage people to distrust the system and move away from it well, and to be, move, move into a more an, anarchic or libertarian space yeah. when what we've got built for us is in fact working fairly well because it's rooted in trust. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, to, to add a little bit of... Um Cynicism myself, I think you know. I don't think everybody in the in the crypto space believes that this is going to completely flip the power orders of the world. This could forever exist as a parallel system. It may not replace the existing system, and it may exist as a niche parallel system. Um, I do think that there is appetite for that parallel system. How big that appetite is has yet to be determined. Whether it takes over mainstream, kind of the mindshare of the mainstream, we'll see. Um, one thing that that, you know, again, to the terminology we've kind of coined in the crypto uh, currency communities, we don't talk about trust or no trust, we talk about the, the need, the, having no need to trust, right? So we, we use the term trustlessness, which is a mouthful when you talk about it, but it's essentially building a system where you don't need to have trust in the counterparty. You don't need to have trust in the person you're interacting with. You just simply understand that the architecture and economics of the system are such that it acts in the way you, in, you think it will act and the way it's intended to act. Meaning you take trust out of the equation rather than introducing this concept of should I trust you or should I not trust you? Because that's where you get caught in these situations where you, in some cases, put your trust in the wrong place. So you mentioned parallel systems and there's always been an interest, certainly in finance, there, there are certain people who would love to have a parallel system. It's how mon money laundering and fraud works through, through parallel systems. And that leads to a question we've got from, uh, from Facebook. How do we combat crypto being used for money, money laundering and terror financing and, and the like? Well, I mean, I think the, the unfortunate answer is you can't. I mean, the, the, this, is, this is a technology, the cat is out of the bag, right? So this is a technology where now we have to start thinking about tools 
in which we can start to identify trends and tools in which we can start to pattern recognize on top of these systems. There is no such thing as going backwards and saying, well, how do I make it impossible for money launderers to use Bitcoin? That, it, it's, a, it's a nonsensical debate, right? So, and this is the same thing that, you know, with every new technology has come goods and bads, and you just hope that over time the goods outweigh the bads, and I think this is a, a perfect example of that. And, you know, in some contexts, money laundering is, or, or you know, terrorist financing or, or tax evasion, uh, in, in other contexts, I mean, to Hillary's point around uh, different economies around the world with less stable governments, these might actually be positive things where, you know, hiding your money from your government is, is necessary. And, you know, paying taxes into a corrupt, um, you know, autocratic system is necessary. Uh, so, you know, as much as there is bads in established economies like Canada, there comes the goods in places around the world where you may, you know, you might find yourself a money launderer and if you lived in certain places around the world where you didn't want people to know how you're, you know, gaining wealth. So, so Hillary... Can I interject there? Yeah. Because I actually think that uh, the money laundering, uh, nation states bypassing sanctions using cryptocurrencies is actually probably the single biggest threat to, uh, to the crypto assets in the G7 countries from the standpoint of... Um, we've we've had this pattern in the back. We've had this pattern in the past with uh, uh, laws around peer-to-peer -peer networks for uh, music file transfers, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, the legal system went after them, and I think that uh, we may see a change of laws here in the next five plus years, where uh, you know the ownership of cryptos becomes uh, illegal, and uh, so there's very effective tools from centralized states to 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 crush this stuff. And uh, I think if the, the the space as a whole doesn't confront this problem head on, they may just be crushed by the law. So that, that, that's a great uh, provocative point to, uh, to, to turn to Hillary because you're working with a number of governments. Uh, the Blockchain Research Institute is working with the federal, provincial, and, and city of Toronto to help think through but even apply some of uh, this technology. So as you're talking to uh, public officials and to regulators, how are you helping them think about this, the, the, this challenge? They well, that, probably don't want to be party to money laundering. Yeah, absolutely not. Well, the framework uh, that that we focus on is blockchain technology, blockchain as an architecture that will underpin uh, the other technologies of the fourth industrial revolution to be a transactional platform to store data points collected from connected devices and uh, possibly artificial intelligence and, and autonomous vehicles, all those kinds of things can, all that data can be captured on an immutable ledger. So we focus more on blockchain technology than we do cryptocurrency and international payments and transfers, though they are all related. I see tremendous interest uh, from the Canadian government at multiple levels to become active participants in learning how the technology can be applied to solve specific problems, how it can uh, uh, streamline uh, payments, processing internally, how there can be greater levels of transparency, because one of, the, one of the features of blockchain technology is transparency and immutability. And imagine uh, uh, our... Can you explain what you mean by immutability? Yeah, the, the um, permanency of records on, on blockchain ledgers. You cannot delete transactions on a blockchain. They're there forever. So it's a, it's a permanent verification that, that a transfer happened. Whether that transfer was a piece of information or whether that transfer was um, an actual unit of value, some kind of payment. One of the applications um, that we have studied is a voting application using blockchain. So yes, it's a type of cryptocurrency, but it's not a payment. It is a different type of asset class where votes are a new asset. Our private data is a new asset. Our health records could be new assets. And we see the province of Ontario uh, very interested in applying blockchain technology to citizen identity. Can we streamline citizen services? Can we add value to Canadians? Can we increase the level of transparency and raise the level of trust in our government? Can we have higher levels of legitimacy? So that's the framework through which our government officials are uh, exploring blockchain as the technology far beyond cryptocurrencies as payment mechanisms. So is this, does that suggest that most progress uh, is likely to be in the non-finance, in the non-currency space? Uh, uh, given the government's interest in, in non-payment applications, I think we will have favorable regu regulation that supports um, the development of different types of asset classes using blockchain, not necessarily payment mechanisms. Christian, you've already self-proclaimed as a skeptic uh, on, on this, and you probably have deals coming to you every day, or pitches. Yes. Is there, <laughs> what in those pitches catches your eye? What's, um, what's of interest? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think, uh, 
there, there's one area that we think is interesting, which is in, is in uh, the sovereignty of data. I think one of the aspects that's really misunderstood about a blockchain and Bitcoin is the actual the expense. So we, we have all these benefits. You know, what are the cons? And uh, and so speed is one of the cons. We've touched touched on that. But one of the other big cons is is actually the cost. Um, you know, if you compare sort of the cost of storing a byte of data on AWS uh, as a sort of proxy for what is it, what is a cloud storage data cost, uh, and you compare that to sort of Ether or Bitcoin, there's about a million times price difference between the cost of storage. So, uh, and so some some instances that cost storage is worth it. The benefits far outweigh that that million time increase. The vast majority of cases actually really doesn't. Um, and you look at it, you look at a solution and go, okay, you know what? If to store data. Uh, there's there's easier ways, less expensive ways to store data, but but um, but nation states uh, nation state where so two nations need to share a data set, but neither wants to have sovereignty over that the other one to have sovereignty over that data. It's kind of an interesting interesting space. Very hard to invest in government related projects given you're dealing with government procurement. So uh, so we're probably not going to make an investment in that space anytime soon. But that's one area where genuinely it's interesting. Um, for the most part, the you know we're, we see a lot of payment providers, payment mechanisms. Um, you know, there's like 400 plus out there today, and to make a bet on any one is 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 you know is actually probably I might as well just go buy a lottery ticket. Uh, probably have better luck doing that. Or um, Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> probably have better luck buying a lottery ticket. Um, so yeah, so I, I wish I wish I had uh, you know more insightful, but part of it is also I think the space needs to mature and needs to move away from here's a really cool technology, let's go find an application for it to, um, okay, we have a really interesting application, we have a really interesting opportunity set, we've got an amazing team around it, oh, and by the way, we just happen to use this set of technologies. So, uh, Speaking of the lottery, if I may, um, our regulatory environment allows us to freely um, implode using uh, gambling mechanisms today, and yet we are restricted uh, on buying other types of, of assets like cryptocurrencies. Um, so it, it's an interesting what question. What do you mean by freely implode? Well, as, as individuals, individuals? Yeah, as individuals, we can go down to the casino. I can spend and my life savings on lottery tickets. Savings, and it happens. And it's, well, it's, you can also buy crypto. Yeah. There, there, it's more restrictive to buy crypto if you're going to so. abide by the law. That, that the OSC said you need to be an accredited investor, and if not, you can only buy two and a half thousand dollars in to buy a token. To yeah. buy a new token. That's yeah. that's categorized as a security. Right. That's so, where that's where a token, right. where somebody's taken, you know, carved off a part of their business, and has said this is going to be both the payment mechanism for my business, but it's also going to be a, a, a part of the ownership of my business. And so, of course, security regulators worldwide have said, look, if, if, you're, if that ownership unit acts like a security, then it's going to be regulated like a security, and that's where the credit investor laws come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so gambling, almost every society has to wrestle with this because it's part of human nature. Uh, most governments choose to box it and, and regulate it or at least police it, knowing that humans are going to waste uh, a, a chunk of their savings, hopefully not too, uh, too much on that activity. And I wonder if that's where, where Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is going, uh, it sounds like it from some of this conversation, into that kind of speculative slash entertainment box that uh, governments will tolerate because it, it feeds a certain part of human nature. Christian, you called it greed, uh, but it won't be allowed to seep into, into the mainstream. Matthew and Hillary, as you talk to regulators and, and government officials, are they thinking more ambitiously than that? I think, I don't know if it was on the list that Adam Ludwin sent to Jamie Dimon, but I think if anybody understands this least, it's governments, it's um, policymakers and regulators around the world. And uh, I think there's a, there's a fundamental challenge that governments will be faced in this space. And it's a regulatory challenge around enforcement. You know, in some contexts, the rules that they would like to enforce might be impossible to enforce in this environment because of what, what this is. Um, governments, you know, if you go macro and you say, well, what happens if crypto really does become mainstream? Um, you, you look at you know, the three mechanisms through which governments you know, control levers of the economy and essentially fund their existence. They do it through taxation. They do it through inflation, and they do it through debt. All three of those things start to dissipate if this becomes mainstream technology. Because taxation in Bitcoin is very difficult to enforce, if, if not impossible, identifying who the actors and participants are in these systems, other than voluntarily asking people to please self-disclose that you own this currency. And you don't, you don't buy the tech argument that, uh, that uh, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies can be developed with uh, taxation? Absolutely they could, but they, you know, there'll always be that parallel system. I, you could build the government's blockchain and you can say, hey, to all you law-abiding citizens, please use the Central Bank of Canada 
risk blockchain, but that's not going to take a away the though. yeah. This is not going to take away the, the the transaction flow that happens increasingly will continue to happen on top of networks like Bitcoin. You know the model of like monetary policy using inflationary uh, policy. You know Bitcoin is the complete opposite. It's a deflationary currency that you know essentially gives people an alternative to you know where you used to say well because if I just stick my money under my mattress I know it's going to lose two percent a year in value so I might go invest that in a government bond and that's how I get kind of value off of my my money and now I'm feeding into the debt the, the government debt machine now you've got deflationary currencies that give you an alternative to that so I, you know we're so niche today it's difficult to think you know at this macro level long term it may never get there but if it does get there this is what causes concerns in large governments like China where they've you know, and Christian mentioned earlier that they can be very effective at crushing new innovations. I'd argue that China's a great example of attempting to slow down the Bitcoin economy and failing. Uh, it used to be that the Chinese government would step out and say, hey, Bitcoin is now banned in China, and the price of Bitcoin would plummet 40, 50% as a result. The last time they announced Bitcoin was banned in China, the price of Bitcoin, you know, barely saw a little, a little dip, and it was back two days later, because the, the levers that these regulators and governments control don't apply to this economy. And it's, it must be frustrating. I can imagine that it's frustrating, and it's not to say that that's a good thing, it's just to say that might be the reality of this, this step development. Right. I think Hillary's champing uh, yeah, at the bit to I, jump I in on this. I would say that China has been openly hostile to certain aspects of uh, cryptocurrencies, particularly uh, as payment mechanisms. On the other hand, in September, uh, the Belt and Road Blockchain Consortium was launched, connecting 65 different economies uh, from um, China to the Mediterranean, the old Silk Road. Uh, we now have a blockchain-based architecture and the Belt and Road Blockchain Initiative has been etched into the Constitution of China. And I'm not aware of any other government who has brought about um, infrastructure into its constitution. So on one hand, China's very threatened by cryptocurrencies. On the other hand, it's investing heavily into the underlying technology, how to streamline trade, how to build trade infrastructure that will be truly revolutionary. So, long, the road. so long as they control the central app, Absolutely. which defeats the purpose. And yes. that's where I think we run into an irony. But then we've got open systems versus yeah. closed systems. <laughs> Christian, you were going to... Uh... No, that was the point I was going to make. China didn't ban the Bitcoin. They just want to control payment mechanisms. They want to control monetary... Oh, they're, so they're talking about a digital renminbi on a blockchain, so long as they can decide the monetary supply and yeah, decide yeah. who the on-ramps are. And, so, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. like, it's, it's, fall, it's folly, really, when you think about, you know, yeah, we're going to take... The, That's when you go back to the system and yeah, build a centralized, centralized system. system frankly, it'd be better to just build it on a sort of modern architecture, web architecture, be cheaper, faster, better. Let's talk a bit about uh, whether there's a unique Canadian approach to, uh, to building uh, cryptocurrencies or blockchain more generally and, uh, and perhaps reg regulating it. We, we're, we're good at a number of things, including finance and regulation in this country. Maybe those are liabilities in terms of the, uh, the innovation space. But uh, I'll start with Matthew and Hillary. Do you see anything uniquely Canadian uh, as an advantage in this uh, space. I mean, Ethereum was uh, arguably created here, and then it left, kind of chased out, uh, perhaps. Um, so are we, in fact, creating limitations or opportunities here? I mean, I think we've got, um, you know, one of the world-leading pools of talent in or around the Toronto area, and, and anybody who invests in technology would agree with that. I think what we're lacking is an environment that encourages, you know, outside of the box thinking. You know, the, uh, it, you know, Christian can probably speak more authoritatively on this than I can. But when I look at the Canadian fintech world, I look at companies who aspire to sell to banks, not compete with banks. And this, you know, this might be the wrong forum to talk about this at RBC. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, there, there's, a, there's a mindset that doesn't exist in Canada, not only among our entrepreneurs, but among our government regulators, where protection of our incumbent industries is first and foremost. And everything that is considered innovation in this country is to support those incumbent industries, not to challenge them. Yeah, um, I, I, can, I can tell you right. So as, as the only independent, which means we don't have any uh, bank money in our fund, uh, we see... Uh, we see fintechs that are absolutely not just trying to sell to banks. Um, uh, you know, in fact, we're, we, see, we see companies that are very much going after uh, profit items, profit line items at banks. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're out there. We have an unbelievable number of Canadian fintech founders that are starting unbelievable businesses. Um, you know, I think they're, I, you know, I also have the opportunity to, to, to spend some time with the regulators. Um, and I would say we, our regulators are just as open as any other G7 regulators at this point. In fact, I'd say they're, they're, they're spending a lot of time together talking because um, I think they all, all want to get it right. 
uh, as right as they can and you know both protect consumers because um, that is one of their missions and also you know uh, keep the financial system stable because the last thing we want um, collectively in the world is a massive recession uh, global recession driven by uh, a massive deflation in crypto assets for example so um, I don't think anyone wants that um, uh, but I, you know and then this just a Here's my uh, hypothetical. I, I'd imagine that the next recession is not going to be as a result of cryptocurrencies. I think it's going to be as a result of poor government management. And I think cryptocurrencies may actually see a significant step into the mainstream if we see another 2008 come around the corner. When you hear about, when you hear about retail investors mortgaging their house, uh, taking the, the mortgage proceeds to investing in cryptocurrencies, uh, you can see a very rapid escalation uh, if you see those, those cryptocurrency values go down, uh, they're now suddenly underwater on their house, they can't make their payments, uh, they, they lose their house, they lose their jobs. It, it, it can quickly escalate. Uh, we saw it back in the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and it would be ironic if cryptocurrencies caused the next financial crisis, uh, given that a lot of the, the genesis of this crypto stuff came out of, the, you know, out of this hatred for, for banks out of, the, out of the 2008 financial crisis. But it, it, do you see it ever being pervasive enough to pose a systemic risk? I don't think we're there yet, but I certainly hear of, of stories that make me uh, the hair on my the, the hair on the neck, back of my neck go up um, about people doing really irresponsible things with their money in crypto, um, and so I don't think we're there yet. Hopefully, this this you know this decrease in value since December to today um, has taken a little bit of wind out of the sails. I'd love if. You know, frankly, as, 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 a, as a third party, I love if the value just sort of stays where it is today and sort of stabilizes and a little bit of the wind comes out of the air, comes out of the bubble. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think there is some, there's a non-zero risk uh, of, of a financial collapse based on crypto. Hillary, can I come back to you on the, the Canadian advantage or liability question? As you survey the world and see what other governments or jurisdictions are doing, is there a, a limit to Canada's innovation in this space or, or an opportunity? Canada has so much going for it uh, in terms of being an innovation, innovation economy. We have highly livable cities. We have good government, responsible government. Um, we have a highly educated population and we embrace diversity, especially in the city of Toronto where 50% of the people in this city were born from else, came from elsewhere. And we're able to get right back, right down to the business of innovating and uh, benefit from academic institutions, University of Waterloo, that corridor between Toronto and Waterloo, taking advantage of great innovation in quantum computing and artificial intelligence. We are a, a, a rich region for creating a, um, an innovation economy. And I think the, the number one threat to that really thriving is overly restrictive regulation. If we take a chainsaw to this regulation, we will just simply see a brain drain and um, the, the, the foundation uh, dismantled. But Christian raised the point earlier that this is something that the G7 could, or others can just drop the hammer on. Do you think that's uh, a possibility or likelihood? There are more than seven countries in the world, and, and all these others are looking. But the seven countries that essentially run I, the global. I agree, but I, and I say that I say that jokingly. Like, you, you want to know where crypto companies are going today? They're not G7 countries. They're Gibraltar. They're the Caymans. They're Switzerland. They're uh, you Arbatos. know Barbados and. The, the, the regulatory suspects, arbitrage is, is increasingly prevalent in this market, right? And, and you can build software companies from anywhere in the world today. And uh, so that, that's the challenge, I think. Another one of these challenges with regulators is they, they live inside a jurisdiction when technology does not. And they can apply rules within a particular box when technology doesn't live inside that box. And so all of a sudden, you'll just see it kind of sneak around the, the not to get like, I'd say that the vast majority of people that I know building companies in this industry, you know, of whom most of my network exists in this industry, are not out there trying to steal people's money and scam people. You know, they're trying to build software companies and think about innovative, innovative ways to raise capital. Uh, and that they're being pressured into making decisions like, should I stay in Canada or should I not? So let me pivot off of that to a question from Facebook about Facebook. Can we, uh, sorry, can we address that yeah. really quickly? Because <laughs> there's a, if you look at the token ICOs in the last you know, year and a half, those that have followed regulatory frameworks and those who haven't, um, those who have followed regulatory frameworks have raised far, far less money. So the money coming in doesn't want to be known, doesn't want to be traced. Um, and that raises, that raises alarm bells for me. 
Um, and so when, when I see here companies talking about, you know, let's change the regulation to make it easier for the money that's coming into my company to be basically untraceable, mm. um, we should be concerned as a people. So to, to, to the Facebook question uh, and, and Cambridge uh, and the, the, the Cambridge Analytics uh, scandal, uh, do, do you think this is Matt making the case for uh, decentralized currencies? I, I, I wish it was. I mean, yeah. I think the, the, the biggest realization coming out of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica is that, in fact, most people haven't turned off their Facebook accounts. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, the, again, to Christian's earlier point, I think there's, we, there's a lot of us who are willing to make that trade-off uh, yeah. because it's such a normal part of our day-to-day lives. We've accepted that as status quo, that I get services, therefore I give something up. And, uh, you know, in most contexts, if you're not paying for that service, it's because you're the product that is being sold to somebody else, right? Your data is yeah. the product. Uh, but isn't that the fundamental argument against Bitcoin when it comes to, to money? People have made a trade, a deal with the financial system. Yeah, it's got some frictions, some inconveniences, but it kind of works. Um, yeah, and, but this is, the, I, I think, I, I fundamentally agree with Christian on this point that if, if we can't get these systems to a point where they're significantly more accessible and more efficient, I don't think they will hit the mainstream. I don't think, I don't think most people will be willing to go through the layers and layers of obstacles and frictions that currently exist to interact with crypto, uh, and not just as a currency, but as a technology. Um, and, and if, you know, that's what the industry should be focusing on right now. I think the best projects out there, uh, and I say this with a bias, are those focused on infrastructure, not those focused on next generation applications, because I think those applications, to Hillary's point, are like building Netflix in 1993. And I think it's significantly too early to start thinking about those things. I think we've got to start worrying about what are the uh, fiber optic cables that need to get built in crypto before we can start thinking about that. So, and, I, and I would say, I, I'd be worried that we haven't seen the killer app yet, right? Um, the, you know, the internet protocol would not, be, would not be here today. We wouldn't have the internet today if we didn't have email. I know, and, and wish we all, I know I'm sure a lot of us would all wish email would change or uh, update, but the reality is uh, a lot of that infrastructure was built uh, because money was being spent. There was real money to be made. And I think without the killer app, I think the, there's, there's a very real op- chance that blockchain, the space as a whole, sort of dies on the vine. Um, and, uh, and, and that happens in tech all the time. I mean, uh, we, we have, there's plenty of examples of out there of, of really interesting tech that never went anywhere. So we've got a, a, a player's question here on whether Ether's value will climb as high as uh, Bitcoin has in the past uh, six months. Anyone want to take that on? Um, well, I mean, I'm not to make a, a prediction on the price, but there is, you know, it's worth understanding that they have very significantly different uh, monetary supplies and monetary policies built into the Ethereum protocol versus Bitcoin. Uh, one is very, very restricted and deflationary in its supply, has led to high prices. The other is significantly more supply of it and is inflationary in its design. So I don't think anytime soon we're going to see Ethereum be at the same value per coin as Bitcoin. Um, we'll see. Any uh, Ethereum boosters here? Oh, this is not a this is not a hit on Ethereum. Yeah. Just uh, yeah. I'm bullish on it. I can't say whether it's going to match Bitcoin or or exceed the price of Bitcoin per coin. Uh, We are studying the applications that are being built on Ethereum, and I think that's why I'm I'm bullish on Ethereum as a technology. And full disclosure, I own Ether. Um, So you can take my comments for what they're worth, but we are doing deep research in this area and, and looking at enterprise experimentation and other experiments which are taking place on the platform. So I'm, in, I'm interested to see where it goes. Another audience question here about uh, the energy burden of uh, blockchain generally, but cryptocurrency specifically uses a lot of energy, all, 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 all the mining going on and lots of projections about how it would drain the world's uh, energy production if it, went to, uh, if, if it went to scale. How serious a concern uh, is this for you, Matt, as you're building things out? And Hillary, as you kind of scan the world, is this just an interesting intellectual debate or is it becoming a, uh, a, a practical challenge? I think it's, it's more an interesting intellectual debate. I think, like, I, I think the last time I heard kind of an, uh, an analogy, I think Bitcoin uses something like the energy on a daily basis of, the, of Australia as a country. So, you know, it's not insignificant. Um, I do think that there's a more fundamental question that the cryptocurrency industry needs to be asking is what happens as the cost of energy drops to near zero over the course of the next few decades. And, and that, I think, is a more important trend for us to be focusing on as people building infrastructure in cryptocurrency is the cost, the barrier to entry, the reason Bitcoin is secure is because it's you know, prohibitively expensive 
to mine Bitcoin. And that's, it's, a, it's almost a security feature. Um, if it becomes less prohibitively expensive to mine Bitcoin, then potentially the security of that system starts to dissipate over time. So you, you think the cost of energy is going to zero? Well, I think the cost of energy trends on, on the cost of production of solar and the cost of production of, of alternative energy sources uh, is, is on a decreasing trend. And um, so maybe, you know, living in Ontario, we're probably the one place in the world who doesn't recognize that. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I think I, our trend's yeah. going the other way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Um, maybe not after but, but next it, it, month. It, but. it begs an interesting question. I, I don't necessarily agree with the trend of zero, but let's, let's assume at least a baseline price globally for, for energy, and it's not particularly high. But uh, in theory, as, as all of these coins um, mature, uh, the lowest cost mining provider will end up becoming the last one standing, um, sure. or potentially last one standing, which defeats the whole purpose of the sort of the, the distributed nature of it. Right? We've seen this in many other, but we've seen this in content delivery networks on the IP and the internet, mm-hmm. right? So the, the idea originally was, uh, you know, everyone was going to host their own server, web servers, and it's going to be all of it. It was going to be massive and distributed. But the, the web today actually looks extremely concentrated. We have these CDNs, these content delivery networks. Uh, the web is far more concentrated today. Why? Cost and speed, right? That we, so we have we have a cost and speed advantage to being centralized internet today. I see the same thing happening within the, the blockchain, the distributed ledger space, and I think that's actually an ex- existential threat to yeah. the space. Right. I agree. So as we move towards close, I wonder if you could each share some insights as to what large organizations, large enterprises should be thinking about. What questions should we be asking and exploring, not just RBC, but everyone involved in established organizations? Matt, maybe I can start with you. Um, yeah, I think, I think one of the challenges that needs to be considered in, in, in strategies long-term, you know, if this technology continues to, to, uh, to move on this trend, um, is that many many of us building, and I used to work at Deloitte, we, we went through this, this is where I started my career in the blockchain space, was thinking about what were the challenges of blockchains as it related to us as, as a firm. Um, you know, many of the moats we've built around our industries and around our companies are built, are based on the, the barrier to entry of very, very expensive infrastructure. Expensive infrastructure that allows us to be a big five bank in Canada, allows us to be a major insurance provider, allows us to be, you know, something that is extremely, you know, prohibitively expensive for somebody to come in and compete in your industry. Um, if, if this technology promises anything, it promises to create open, public, free infrastructure on top of which businesses can be built at little to no cost of infrastructure. And that means that we can start to build competitive products to what banks have provided for centuries without the cost of infrastructure of banks. And, and if that trend is true, then you know, strategic decisions need to be made within these large enterprises. Right. Hillary, what, uh, what questions should we be, should we be asking? As organizations, I think um, it's incumbent upon business leaders to learn about um, potential transformation of this technology and to become informed. Uh, Find out how your existing business model could be transformed by new technology in the same way that the internet radically transformed business models. In what way could blockchain architecture, could cryptocurrencies pose a threat to existing business? How do you prepare? Do you wait? Do you experiment? Um, uh, One of the functions, our role at the BRI is to help organizations prepare for what we see as um, an inevitable transformation and um, to help steer the organizations strategically uh, for the future. How will, um, uh, what applications are being built? Essentially, if, if you're Blockbuster today, what are the Netflixes of tomorrow? And Blockbuster didn't have the data, they did not have the business cycles to make the decision to buy Netflix, and so they didn't. And we know how that story ended. And our purpose is to help organizations learn about what governments are doing with this technology, what businesses are doing, and what um, innovators are doing to create alternative uh, systems. So get informed. Christian, what should we be thinking about? Maybe what should we avoid thinking about? Yeah, no, look, I, I think it's, it's uh, I, I would advise companies to ask hard questions, you know, peel back the layer of jargon and, and actually ask themselves like, what actually is this, you know, what is, what is the application that we would use this for? Uh, is it actually useful? Um, do, a, do a cost benefit analysis of, uh, you know, at scale, it's, you know, these, these projects are very easy and they, they lull you into a sense of security that, um, this stuff will just work at scale, but actually ask questions of how does this actually stuff work at scale? And then ask yourself, are there easier, faster, cheaper ways of doing something uh, for your end consumer? And I, I, don't, I don't see enough of that questioning going on. I see a lot of the, 
you know, we see I see a lot of the company, large companies going, oh, we, we're going to do a you know investigative blockchain work simply because, which is fine. I think that's that's not a not smart thing to do. Um, but going beyond that, they need to start asking really hard questions. Great. So we started the, the conversation with some uh, provocative comments about how no one knows what they're talking about in this space, and, and I think you've helped elevate all of our thinking uh, around this issue. So thank you for sharing the time with us today and sharing your insights. And before we go, I'd like to mention that as a token of our appreciation, uh, a donation is being made uh, to the charities of your choice. Uh, so Matthew, it's uh, Thorne, uh, Hillary, it's the Tim Hortons Children's Foundation, and Christian has picked the Sick Kids Foundation. I wonder if you could just say a few words about why that, uh, why that charity means so much to you. Yeah. Matthew. Um, Thorne has been trying to address the problem of online uh, children's sex slavery um, and trafficking of online content, and they're increasingly starting to notice that cryptocurrencies are making seeping into that world, uh, and it's, I think, a problem that needs to be addressed, and we're hopefully going to help them find some solutions to that. That's great. Thank you. Hillary. Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons Children's Foundation sends um, underprivileged children to camp. And uh, our family had the experience of meeting four of these girls who had never left the city and who found the experience of being in Ontario, um, uh, the lakes and, and, and trees of northern Ontario to be such a transformational, peaceful uh, break from the, the chaos and the conflict of their daily lives. Uh, but secondly, Summer camp is one of the only opportunities that young people have to digitally disconnect and to develop their emotional intelligence and learn how to play with each other and to create and to experience things in an unplugged, disconnected environment. So if we can continue to nurture um, the way we interact uh, uh, through a camp environment, I think that's a service to our young people. Thank you. No, thank you. Christian, Sick Kids. Sick Kids. What, what can I say about Sick Kids? Um, you know, the research that's done at Sick Kids uh, is saving lives, not just here in Toronto, in fact, not just nationwide, but globally. Uh, there, there, you know, we have a, very few institutions in Canada uh, in any sector that are recognized globally, uh, and, and Sick Kids is one of them. And so we are, we are so lucky as Torontonians, Ontarians, and Canadians to have uh, such an amazing group of people working uh, to, uh, into, into transformational research, which is transforming into saving, into saving not just kids' lives, but in fact, sometimes adults' lives. So, so I'm very proud uh, to, be, uh, to be a supporter, and, and in fact, uh, RBC is as well. So uh, you know, thanks to RBC as well for being a big supporter of Sick Kids. Oh, and thanks for your leadership. You're, you're, you're chairing the board, right, of the Sick Kids uh, Foundation? I'm vice chair of the board. Vice, vice chair, hey, sorry, hey, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, terrific, the leadership uh, you're, you're doing you. there and all that it's, uh, it's, it's doing, all the charities are, uh, are doing. Uh, please mark your calendars. Uh, May 24th is our our next uh, RBC Disruptors. We're going to be broadcasting from the C2 conference in Montreal with the uh, Chief Digital Officer of Estonia talking about how to create a digital state. So some of these issues and more. Uh, in June, we've got Dax Da Silva uh, coming to talk about diversity and innovation to mark uh, Pride Month. And then in July, we'll be holding our annual How to Think Like a Startup with some cool firms from uh, the Valley joining us here. So follow us on RBC Connect for uh, details. If you want to listen or share this conversation. We'll have a podcast recording uh, posted uh, shortly. Sign up for our, our mailing list and uh, follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks so much for uh, spending this morning with us. Uh, Matt, Hillary, Christian, thank you for your time. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Today's show was produced and edited by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com or join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening.